So you meet a woman online. I love her. I just love her. But it turns out thousands of other people are in love with her too. Janessa Brazil. Janessa Brazil. Janessa Brazil. One woman's image is being used by criminals to target innocent people looking for love online. You win their hearts, you win their wallets. Love, Janessa. My wild quest to find her. The unwitting human face of a digital con from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. This is a CBC podcast. Even wearing a kafir right now, even wearing a Palestinian cultural symbol right now does not feel safe. So I was approached just for wearing my kafir and essentially told that it is okay, it is justifiable for Palestinians to be killed. This is this is the world that we exist in right now. This is in Canada and this is the norm. This is what I and other Palestinians have to experience every single day, simply for existing, simply for sharing our identity. A kafia is a Palestinian cultural scarf. That was Nadine Nasser. She's a Palestinian, Canadian, and Christian. And she says these past weeks have been difficult for her and for her community. It's not just the grief of the loss of life and the scale of the loss of Palestinian life, but also the dehumanization of Palestinians. Uh, and the constant need that I feel to justify why Palestinians shouldn't be killed, why Palestinians deserve life. Those feelings extend beyond the Palestinian community. The National Council of Canadian Muslims says they've received a 1,300% increase in reports of hate-motivated incidents since the 7th of October. Last weekend, a Toronto woman wearing a hijab was sprayed with something. Mosques have been spray-painted, damaged, and in one case, feces was spread on the front doors. In the midst of this, a new Senate report on Islamophobia prompted by the murder of four members of the Afsal family in London, Ontario, was released. Jasmine Zine is a professor of sociology, religion, and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. Dalia Alfara is Palestinian-Canadian and works in human rights and equity, diversity, and inclusion at the post-secondary level. She's in Toronto. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Dalia, you have, have friends and family in Gaza. How are they doing right now? I do. Uh, my father's side of the family is originally from Hanunis, and that's where I'm from. Uh, my father uh, was able to evacuate a couple of weeks ago. Some of my family members, immediate family members, were able to evacuate with the UK citizens that evacuated. But the rest are unable to um, to do anything. They don't have another option. You ask how they are. They, I always say they're unharmed physically. But the mental trauma is real. The emotional trauma is real. Food and water is scarce. The fear of not knowing what's happening, not knowing what's when and if they're going to be targeted. We were speaking to my cousin and in the background of his voice notes on WhatsApp was intense bombing. And that's been the norm for them. What about for you? Well, Matt, uh, survival guilt is real. There, there are so many levels of grief and trauma that myself and community members here are dealing with. Uh, for me, on many levels, the worry for my family, the worry for my people in general, even if I didn't have any family, the, just watching and hearing what's happening has been horrific. So dealing with that anger and grief and frustration, um, I'm also feeling very disenfranchised and uh, very marginalized here in Canada and wondering why is it that 
as a Palestinian Canadian, my human rights, my people aren't being treated at the same level, even of level of attention, of government action or inaction in this case. As I grieve, it just makes me wonder what I'm doing mm. and the frustration of not being able to do anything, of speaking and and also being afraid to speak up. I'm also um, a mom of two children who have uh, been actively well, one is a young a young adult now, voicing their opinions and and protesting and speaking to media and elected officials, and I worry for their safety on so many levels. It's been it's been very difficult, and I don't know what the recovery is, what the healing of this will look like. I want to, and I certainly want to talk about that healing because that will be important now, but it'll be important in future as well. Jasmine, what about for you? What have the last six weeks been like for you? Well, I think the last six weeks have been just a whirlwind of grief and horror as we see this um, genocide unfolding in Palestine. And while I am a Muslim and racialized woman, I'm not Palestinian, but I am a scholar of Islamophobia studies and have been looking at the aftermath of uh, events like 9-11 and how that's impacted Muslim communities in Canada and elsewhere. And in particular, I was looking at the impact in my recent book, Under Siege, Islamophobia and the 9-11 Generation, on how those events impacted Muslim youth in Canada. And what I'm seeing now is a situation that is much worse than what we saw in the aftermath of 9-11. And I'm also seeing, you know, the impact on young people who, you know, when we go to the protests and we see, you know, families and young people, I'm reminded of the fact that my children grew up going to rallies and demonstrations in support of Palestinian people their entire lives. And Therefore, they become quite politicized at a very young age and are aware of what's happening and the precarity uh, of their own identities as Canadian Muslims. And so, um, you know, that has led to a great deal of anxiety and stress and frustration among um, Muslim youth uh, in Canada. Can I ask you about the use of the word genocide, which is a word that I mean, there's a legal definition of it, but it's also a word that is being used outside of those legal... We've spoken with, you know, the executive director of Human Rights Watch, who's investigating war crimes and investigating uh, the possibility of... of um, war crimes happening uh, in, in various corners from various sides. Why do you use that word in particular? I think the language of genocide, number one, I think it feels quite self-evident in terms of what we are witnessing. Also, it has been named textbook case of genocide by Holocaust scholars, by uh, UN uh, officials and human rights experts. So I think that this term now is widely recognized and widely used and uh, I think attempts to contest it are, are problematic at this point. How is what you're seeing right now different from what happened after 9-11? Well, I think it's worse, as um, what I mentioned, you know, and it's worse because over the past two decades, Islamophobia has laid the groundwork that makes it easier to collectively label and punish Muslim populations. You know, we've seen the global war on terror that's been underpinned by racist ideologies, and that's cast nearly two billion people around the world as violent, fanatical terrorists who threaten democracy, the stability of white nations, and Western civilization. And so that has paved the way for what we're witnessing today in Palestine. And 
the all too easy equation of Muslims as radicals, terrorists, uh, jihadists, right, as a sort of wholesale label that has led to collective guilt and punishment. Also because those Islamophobic narratives since 9-11, we've seen the language of colonial racism and Orientalist narratives have been used to fortify global structures of white supremacy and these types of imperial wars. And so when we hear the dehumanizing tropes that are um, applied to racialized Palestinians as barbaric, as human animals, as monsters, and so on, um, we see that that kind of language uh, adds to the ability then to, um, you know, enact wholesale violence on populations, on entire populations with a certain kind of, of impunity. And, you know, you need to construct that that enemy. And, you know, as a media critic, Sam Keen warned, in the beginning, we create the enemy before the weapon comes the image. And so when you are purveying those kinds of images, um, that facilitates um, the ability to then go in and enact all sorts of atrocities. Dahlia, there's a distinction that people are making between Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian racism. What is that distinction? Well, characterizing anti-Palestinian racism as just Islamophobia really misses the mark because it's very real. Uh, I mean, Islamophobia is very real and it's absolutely experienced by many Palestinians. But anti-Palestinian racism isn't just experienced by Muslims or Palestinian Muslims. It mischaracterizes the root of this. I don't like to use the word conflict, but the root of this conflict is a religious struggle. But it's actually a struggle against settler colonialism. So, um, so classifying it as a religious struggle is um, is problematic. It also excludes racism people of other religions uh, experience, be they Palestinians or Palestinian allies or people who are speaking up for Palestinian uh, struggles. You said in the context of what's happening that you feel disenfranchised. I mean, again, yeah. in speaking out about this and and speaking out in this moment. What does that disenfranchisement to you look like? Well, I can't grieve in peace. There, there's a constant feeling of being attacked and need to de- needing to defend myself and just struggling to explain why our children matter, why it's not okay that our children and our people be killed, innocent civilians, and just constantly trying to humanize myself and my people is uh, as I'm grieving, as I'm watching this horrific genocide unfolding and being attacked as uh, a terrorist supporter or a an anti-Semitic person just because I'm speaking up for all these war crimes that are happening. The narrative coming from our elected officials, from the media, from the systems that are supposed to support me and, and keep me safe they're making me feel vulnerable. They're flaming, they're fanning the flames of hatred. When you have our premier of Ontario calling the pro-Palestinian rallies hate protests, that's not making me feel safe. It makes me feel very disenfranchised. Why in this day and age do I have to prove my humanity and humanity of my people? What what is the action? You said there's government in action. What's the action that you would want to see from government in this moment? Well, ultimately, sanctions on the state of Israel, for sure. But at the very, very minimum, why hasn't our government called for a ceasefire? It's been six weeks. And the the temporary truce is nothing enough. What are we doing? We're pausing for a few days so that you can replenish, hydrate, and feed some of the people and then start killing them again? The, the um, line, the line from, from Bill Blair and others um, in the government has been that Hamas has been designated a terrorist organization, that it wouldn't respect a ceasefire, and that Israel 
has the right has the rights to defend itself and to eliminate a threat that it would face from an organization like Hamas. Is is killing almost six thousand children uh, defending itself? That's that's the inaction. At what at what point do they stop uh, feeding into the narrative of this defending itself? It's not it's not an excuse. What Israel is doing is using Hamas as an excuse to ethnically cleanse an entire population of Palestinians. What, what, is, what does that mean? What does that mean to what, what does that mean to ethnically cleanse the entire population of Palestinians? Because again, you will hear very forceful defenses from not just the Canadian government but elsewhere saying that that's. That, that, that's not what's happening. So from your perspective, what does that mean? The remaining residents in the northern parts of Gaza are are packing up to leave because whoever is being stayed, their homes are being demolished. So basically, they're leveling the north of Gaza, forcing everyone to move to the south, which isn't safe because my family lives in the south and they've been under deadly and heavy bombardment since last night. And it's not new. It, it didn't start on October 7th, Matt. In the West Bank alone, I think we have over 300 people being uh, uh, who've been killed already, Palestinians. And there's no Hamas in the West Bank. Over 3,000 political prisoners just since October 7th have been taken in, in the, illegally in the West Bank, many of them children. So um, at what point does this narrative of self-defense become oh, maybe this is a little more than this, and this is a genocide, and this is uh, ethnic cleansing, and these are war crimes that need to stop. So that's my disappointment in our government. Jasmine, you work on a university campus, and we have seen um, many of the discussions that, that, that you're talking about play out in a very pointed way on those campuses, well-documented incidents of Islamophobia, well-documented incidents of anti-Semitism as well. What do you think that those institutions could do to better protect the students who don't feel safe right now, but could also better protect the students who want to express their point of view on what's happening? Well, I think what we've been seeing on campuses, um, not just in Canada, but, you know, around the world when anyone is speaking out um, around Palestine, uh, is we're seeing a silencing of free speech. We're seeing, you know, student groups who sign letters in support of Palestinian people at this critical time being, you know, um, censored. Uh, we had the Minister of Colleges and Universities in Ontario um, in legislature read out the names of of students who signed letters in support of Palestinian people, literally doxing them and putting a target on their back. First of all, this is a, an issue that shouldn't involve this kind of governmental overreach and in un, under no circumstances should the minister be in, further endangering students who are exercising their right to support um, the Palestinian people. And so we've seen a lot of student groups being silenced. We've seen also faculty, um, you know, facing repercussions. Many of the universities across Canada are, um, the faculty associations are passing emergency motions to protect faculty and their right to academic freedom and to be able to weigh in on this conflict through their faculty associations and unions. Um, these are some of the kinds of issues that have been um, um, happening on our university campuses even prior to um, what we're seeing right now. And of course, now there's an escalation in all of these kinds of issues in the way that um, students on campus are feeling silenced and threatened. And so it's created this sort of chilly climate and actually a climate of fear. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. 
Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Let me talk just broadly about the moment that we're in outside of this war. We saw last week in London, Ontario, or the man the man responsible for killing four members of the Afzal family in London, Ontario, was sentenced to life in prison. What impact do you think this ruling is going to have, Jasmine, on on the conversation around, but also the action that needs to be taken around Islamophobia? Well, I think, you know, uh, I think some people might have liked to see charges of terrorism in in uh, that particular ruling. And that could still I come think, from the know, judge's ruling. That's right. Yeah. So that could still be enacted. I think it's important that, um, you know, I think it brings some some sense of, you know, uh, relief to the families that were affected by this. But I think really what this speaks to is the fact that Islamophobia in this country has reached deadly proportions. Not only the attack against the Afsal family in 2021, but the Quebec uh, City Mosque shooting in 2017. Uh, many other incidents, you know, we had a mosque caretaker who was stabbed to death a couple of years ago. We start to see, you know, so many um, violent attacks happening even quite recently um, that you mentioned at the start of this segment. And um, so there is still that pervasive fear and threat that Muslim populations across this country are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And especially those who are more visibly marked as Muslims, uh, Muslim women who wear headscarves, for example, are going to feel far more vulnerable in the public sphere because of these kinds of attempts. So there is that sense of uh, needing to be far more vigilant about your safety and security and, you know, waiting to see what other measures are going to be implemented uh, by various levels of government to ensure the safety of Muslim communities um, during these times of crisis where Islamophobia, anti-Muslim racism, anti-Palestinian racism are heightened. Dalia, are you hopeful? There was a Senate report on Islamophobia released earlier this month, and it found that Many Muslims in Canada experience Islamophobia on a daily basis. We've talked about this on this program in terms of what people face every single day when they go out. Are you confident that change could come out of this report? Um, I can't say I am, honestly. I wish I could say yes, Matt. I can't say I am. The um, the, uh, reports come out, recommendations come out, and then follow-up doesn't uh, actually happen. We're looking... As at an example for the TRC uh, commission recommendations, I think uh, we have 94 calls to action and how many have been implemented? And it's been years, I think less than a dozen, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so I'm not holding my breath. I really hope to say, I really wish I could say that, yeah, um, I'm feeling hopeful and these are great recommendations, but I don't, I don't find, um, Right now, I'm not in a place where I feel very hopeful or very confident in uh, in the, this country's ability to um, to move forward. Does that make you feel? I mean, as somebody who used that word disenfranchised, you said you felt disenfranchised in in this moment. Does that make you feel differently about your place in Canadian society? Oh, for sure, absolutely. And it's not uh, uh, it's not only me. There are a lot of uh, 
conversations I'm having with people um, within my community, within other racialized communities who feel this way. And uh, it's it's very sad and it's part of the grief we're feeling and the trauma. So what do we do about this? Because we're in this moment where there is, and the report says it, you're both saying it, people feel it and see it, an increase in Islamophobia. There is a marked increase as well in anti-Semitism right now. When this moment that we're in passes, the deep scars of it, it feels like will be around for a long time. So what do we do about that? By saying we, are you placing the uh, responsibility and the burden of the healing on the people who have been traumatized and scarred? We, we as a nation, we, we as as a people. I, I don't know, Matt. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I wish I did. I'd feel more hopeful, more optimistic. Uh, when I immigrated to Canada, it was um, um, I immigrated from the Middle East because. I wanted my children to have roots in a comp- in a country that gave them dignity and respected human rights and freedoms, including freedom of expression. And I wanted them to be the best versions of themselves they could be. And I don't see that happening. And this uh, at this moment, I uh, I'm feeling very disappointed. So I don't know what the answer to that is. I wish I did, and I don't know where the uh, burden of working towards healing should should lie i mean who's who's responsible for who who has created the harm and who's responsible for fixing the damage jasmine where where do we go from here do you think i find that equally um difficult to answer because i've been you know given that question since the last 20 years since the aftermath of 9/11 where a lot of these same kinds of questions these same kinds of panels and discussions were taking place lots of you know hate crime incidents lots of disproportionate violence abroad through the global war on terror and you say it's, and you, you say know, it's worse now here and I say it's worse now. And, you know, over the past 20 years uh, and in that time, we have had those two deadly terror attacks. We have seen very little in terms of the kind of, um, you know, changes that have been suggested and recommended through multiple forums. You know, there was a summit on Islamophobia in Canada in 2021 in the summer federal summit and community members and organizations put forward hundreds of recommendations. We've heard nothing about any of that. Um, While it's helpful to have another report that again reaffirms the fact that Islamophobia is a major pervasive and deadly issue in this country, and they've also put forward recommendations. Uh, Given where I've been watching these events unfold over the last 20 years in this country, I don't also have much hope that we are going to see any kind of definitive change, even though the stakes are incredibly high. That's a really hard place to be. It is. It is, yes. It is a hard place to be, and yet we can't sugarcoat the reality and the truth. It's time to confront those difficult truths, those inconvenient truths. And I think only then we will perhaps start to work toward uh, a way forward, but we're definitely not there yet. Mm. I'm glad to talk to you both about this. Thank you. Thanks, Jasmine. Thank you, Dahlia. Jasmine Zeen is a professor of sociology, religion, and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. Dalia Alfara is Palestinian-Canadian and works in human rights and equity, diversity, and inclusion at the post-secondary level. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.